This week on Life and Faith. What do you think might be surprising for a contemporary Westerner, secular Westerner, in terms of what Christianity could give them if they were to have a look? Oh, pleasure. It would make their lives far more interesting, exciting, uh, unpleasurable, and physical, because they're essentially alienated from their bodies if they think their bodies are just pieces, you know, bits of matter. Whereas the body is precisely the site where matter and mind are, are interacting. I mean, they would just find their lives way more fun. If we're doing work right, it's a part of life. We certainly knew that it was going to lead to war. There's an opportunity to reconnect with spirituality through parenthood. I don't think that there's that many true atheists out there, really. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with the British philosopher and theologian John Milbank that we did back in March of 2019. Milbank is a formidable talent in his field. His book, Theology and Social Theory, that was published in 1990, laid the foundations for a movement that came to be known as radical orthodoxy, if you are interested in such things. But today we'll be talking about the West's rejection of faith, the reasons for that, and what it all might mean. First up, though, an extract from a poem by Dennis O'Driscoll called Missing God. His grace is no longer called for before meals. Farmed fish multiply without his intercession. Bread production rises through disease-resistant grains devised scientifically to mitigate his faults. Yet, though we rebelled against him like adolescents, uplifted to see an oppressive father banished a bearded hermit to the desert, we confess to missing him at times. Miss him during the civil wedding when At the blossomy altar of the registrar's desk, we wait in vain to be fed a line containing words like everlasting and divine. Miss him when the TV scientist explains the cosmos through equations, leaving our planet to revolve on its axis aimlessly, a wheel skidding in snow. There is a perplexing current in our culture that wants to say that all forms of life are, from bottom up, simply material things. There's no non-material reality. We are merely physical beings without souls. Our minds are simply our brains. But the implications of all that, should it be true, are profoundly important, it seems to me. According to this way of thinking, having rejected the idea of transcendence, then it follows that there can also be no truth, no right or wrong, no reality to things like love or injustice or beauty or the sacred. It's a grim way of thinking about life, actually. And John Milbank has a bit to say about all this, along with what he thinks is going on in the rejection of religion in the West. John, in the West, Christianity appears to be at least in sharp decline. There are understandable reasons for this too, though, aren't there? You can argue about how continuous and inevitable that decline has been. You know, there's one sense in which 
ever since you know the end of the Middle Ages and early modernity, you, you know we've had the Reformation, we've had the Scientific Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, and all these things have affected religion. But you can also argue, for example, at the beginning of the 19th century, there was a very, very considerable religious revival. And historians are now also arguing that the 30s was another period of religious revival, and that in many ways what you got after 1945 was kind of the last global Christian settlement, that people are more and more viewing it in those terms, if you like. But I think Ever since the 60s, there's been an assumption of something like inevitable secularization. And, uh, you know, explaining exactly why that's happened is, is quite difficult. But I suspect that kind of the baby boomer generation to which I belong, that this was very ill-communicated. I think people were exhausted after the war. They were happy about new prosperity. And quite quickly, people came to think that the only values in this settlement were sort of, uh, you know, free choice uh, and democracy, and that the children of the 60s were sort of absolutely outraged that everything wasn't about that, you know, that they couldn't choose their educational programs and so on. And I think none of my compatriots understood that, you know, the welfare state that they'd grown up with, you know, the free public libraries, you know, maybe, you know, the, the, uh, the scorn 1950s about the happiest time to be a child in the whole of human history. But nobody understood that those things were based to a very considerable degree on a Christian vision, both in Europe and in America and in Britain. I think nobody understood that. So ideas about human dignity, human flourishing, the the ends of human life were kind of not communicated to us. And uh, so I think there's a sense of complacency that already Christianity after the Second World War, slipped too much into a kind of liberalism, even though it was qualified. And this may be part of what uh, has allowed this incredibly militantly secular era to grow. I mean, of course, if you have capitalism, if you have um, the dominance of technocratic thinking, it appears that there's no room for the sacred or, or, or whatsoever. So you have to make a very conscious effort to limit these things. And essentially what I'm suggesting to you is that these sort of the dominant modes of liberalism are about desacralizing. If you desacralize, you can turn everything into money, you could rearrange everything ad libitum. So that it's not so much just at the level of belief, but the main processes are of our society. And I would go so far as to say is they're kind of demonic, you know, that it's Jesus who tells you that, you know, money is the king of this world. And it's satanic. And he's right. It's yeah. a it's a road to Perdition. destruction, isn't yeah. it? Really? Yeah. This dominant secular scientific assumption that in the West particularly, that material reality is the only reality is quite perplexing and I often consider how most people don't live like that's true like they live with ideas of good and evil I can, and beauty I, I, I and could those not agree things. with you more I think the remarkable thing is that the reason I do think religion may revive is that it is on the side of common sense that all the time people behave as if they had minds as if they had souls as if the good the true and the beautiful the right and wrong were real and yet the scientific discourses which we have or rather their scientific reductive modes 
can't really allow the reality for any of these things. And, you know, to put this very, very simply, you know, attempts to explain the higher in terms of the lower, you know, attempts to explain mind, consciousness, our sense of the ethical free will in terms of material processes are hopeless. They're, they're never going to work. The most you can ever do is to argue that somehow there's an epiphenomenal level. I mean, even at the level of, you know, trying to say that, you know, the chair you're sitting on is really atoms and so on. It's, it's well, then why does it appear to be a chair? And I think there's a big philosophical reaction against this, a, a reaction in favor of saying that there are all sorts of realities and they're all equally real and that there's a shift towards realism rather than materialism going on in contemporary philosophy. And I, I think this is positive news for religious people. And I think it's much more plausible to believe that mind explains matter rather than, than the reverse. Not simply the human mind, but the fact that the human mind can understand material reality to a degree is a key that material reality derives from a wider, greater mind that we can't comprehend. One frustrating thing for someone like you might be getting people to even start to think in those terms or just to uh, yeah. face the implications of the belief. Well, and I don't think the church, I mean, I think, you know, theologians and philosophers, secular philosophers like theologians like me try to do it, but I don't think the church, I think the church is very, very tame about this sort of thing. And it's really a cultural disgrace that people who think they're intelligent can write things in The Guardian all the time about a fictitious sky god. I mean, this is just plain ignorance. And so, you know, a Marxist critique like Terry O'Gilton has done a brilliant job in pointing this out and, you know, saying like Dawkins trying to write about religion is, is like a, you know, a bird watcher trying to write about botany. There is just no way you can describe, you know, the great thinkers of Islam, Christianity or Judaism as believing in a fictitious sky god. It's ludicrous. And people have to be called out on this sort of thing. You know, whether they believe or not, I understand people not believing, goodness. But you can't caricature your enemy in that kind of way. It's not acceptable. Now, in this move away from Christianity, away from religion, and this weird kind of contradictory rejection of the transcendent. Do you think people are finding that somewhere else, like outside of religion? Are they finding something that gives them some sort of spiritual or transcendent Definitely. Meaning? I think the evidence of that is massive. It's extraordinary the number of people who pray but don't believe in God, or they say, or believe in angels, or even claim to have seen angels or round where I live in Nottinghamshire, I would go along the railway track and yet another fairy tree has appeared adorned with, with ribbons. And unlike some Christians, I don't dismiss this sort of thing at all. I think that people are right to have some sense that of sacredness of place and that there are mysterious forces in nature. And I think this goes along with increasing sympathy for vitalistic philosophies and panpsychic philosophies which I think are perfectly compatible with transcendence. In fact, I think they work better in terms of transcendence than mere imminence, but that will be a long conversation. But I think there's huge evidence in terms of, I mean, some things like, you know, practices of mindfulness and so on, I worry that they're just oiling the wheels of uh, uh, commerce, you know, that they're too instrumental and so on. But I think other things, I mean, a certain initial longing for the pagan again is not false because there's a form of Christianity that has sort of rejected every mediation, uh, sacramental mediation, 
mediation. And that's surely, that's a big mistake. You know, it's the, the idea that God produced a dead, disenchanted world is not very plausible to me. Gosh, we could, I'd love to talk more about that, but I suspect we need to keep yeah. moving. Um, could you comment on the way in which the Christian imagination still holds significant influence in Western culture and things like literature and story and art, and whether that's a, an area that's worth I think, revitalizing? I think this is, is, is a really great question, and it's very interesting. I mean, if you think of the sheer popularity of the Inklings, you know, the most well-known are C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, or, or if you think of the Harry Potter phenomenon, that J.K. Rowling is also a Christian. It's ironic that evangelicals are suspicious. <laughs> it's the craziest thing I ever heard of, because especially the last book in the Harry Potter series is actually a profound theological meditation. And the stories turn very dark and serious and, and religious. And so that's extraordinary. And it's as if if religion and the sacred dies from every area of our life, it revives through the imagination. And I think that maybe the key insight of people like Lewis and Tolkien is precisely, but earlier somebody like George MacDonald, the Scottish fantasy writer of sheer genius in my view, uh, and a profound theologian by the way, and linked to sort of German romantics like Novalis. But this the sense that actually religion comes from the imagination, you know, that it, God communicates through the inspiration of our, our imagination. And, and that has happened at that level of whole cultures. But when it dies, it's as if certain inspired artists have access to it again. Or just being in the museum here in New South Wales and looking at the dazzling array of 20th century Australian painters, extraordinary figurative painters, abstract painters, but all, I think, deeply imbued with something mystical, whether the influence is a Christian, Asian, indigenous, remarkable, you know? And it's the same in music, you know, the number of 20th century composers right up to the present day and James Macmillan and so on, the number of them who are religious out of all proportion is, is really remarkable. Again, as if, you know, the phenomenon of music, the linking in music of the rational and the aesthetic is something very mysterious and not really explicable. You know, why should it be that we can invent slash discover music, you know, maybe it's the same question with with mathematics. And it's somehow implausible to read this in atheist terms. This is Life and Faith. I'm Simon Smart. Today, we're bringing you an interview with philosopher and theologian John Milbank, Milbank has some really interesting things to say about big shaping currents in our culture and the direction it's heading in. Particularly in his sights these days is an ideology of liberalism that Milbank says from both the left and the right elevates the individual and free choice to almost an article of faith. He says the decline of religion has led to its replacement with ideologies and that there are huge costs associated with the influence of liberalism, or at least what that has become. And he's looking for something more life-enhancing to take its place. 
Now, you have a phrase relating to the current political climate, the double-headed hydra of liberalism. I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that and how we got to this situation. Um, I think we tend to think of politics as a battle between the right and the left. And typically, we think of um, the right as people who support the free market and want little state intervention. But on the other hand, they're, they're very pro-family and tend to be quite socially conservative. Then on the other hand, we have the left, and they tend to be thought of as more in favour of state intervention and welfare, but much more liberal about issues to do with family and sex and gender and so forth. So my thesis is that... Uh, these two things appear to be in opposition, but they aren't really, because what we have is an economic liberalism on the right and a cultural liberalism on the left. And if you look back over the past 40 years, we've seen a greater and greater triumph of liberalism. So we've had uh, free market economics, but we've had an increasing breakdown of uh, family and sexual norms and generally a rise of a kind of narcissism. The left likes to think, well, it's winning the cultural battle. Somewhere down the line, it might win the economic battle. But increasingly, that doesn't seem to be able to do anything about increasing poverty in the world or ecological destruction. It deludes itself. And this is because, I think, increasingly these two things are harmonizing. Yeah, so it's almost like two elements of the one thing, just yes. in different guises. It's like a shadow battle. It's as if things are set up, for whatever reason, to disguise the fact that these are allies. Yes, and how, how did we get to this situation? <laughs> it's a long history, but is, it, yes. is there an easy it's, way to say that or not really? My suspicion is that you have to think of... Um, the whole of modern times, you know, since the 19th century, as a battle between religion in decline and rising secularization. And that as you've got religion in decline, you get ideologies substituting for religion. You get fascism, you get communism. And what we fail to realize is that liberalism is also an ideology. It's not really neutral. It's the cult of the individual and of free choice or of kind of aggregated choices, which are so-called democracy, as being completely normative. And I think once the other ideologies have been killed off, especially since 1990, and in the face of kind of what's sometimes seen as the threat of Islam, you've got more and more the dominance of liberalism, and it's become more and more evident that it's an ideology. And this is why I think you've now got the populist reaction against it. Yeah, so I, I want to get to that in a second. Yeah. But this cult of individualism, yeah, and with that, I think, comes a definition of freedom yes. that, in my mind, is kind of a poor definition. It's an endless choice, yes. seems to be the definition. Yeah. Why is that not a good way well, to think Well, philosophers like to talk about um, negative freedom, you know. So it's what you've just said. It, it's the freedom to buy the flavor of toothpaste you want, and you're offered an unnecessary numbers of different flavors. And I, I agree. It's you know what it says in the New Testament is you know know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But this is 
uh, kind of thing that's also been articulated by ancient philosophers or by philosophers in the Orient as well, that uh, you're unconstrained when it's something not trying to uh, manipulate or force you. So you're free in relationship to the truly desirable, you know, a Buddhist as much as a Christian understands this, I think. So we need to think of freedom more positively as it's choosing the genuinely good life that is a free choice. Uh, so in a sense, it's much more a matter of desire than of choice. When something's trying to seduce you in every sphere, you're not really free. But when something is truly desirable for you, then you're free. So there's a sense in which wisdom might be a good way to think of the, of this. And I guess it, it requires an agreement that there actually is such a thing as a good life or a right well, choice. That, that's where it gets controversial, yes. And that can sound far too dogmatic. But I think that the more important point is to have a belief that there is a good life, that it's something you're searching for. And that can vary for individuals, you know. Um, there can be different valid ways of the good life. But there can be also a sense that this is objectively the right choice for somebody. It's really making them flourish. And we're, nothing is ever completely isolated. You know, we're, we're all always doing a version of something that other people have already done. Say, if you become an artist or, or something like that, or a doctor, you know, these are roles which you perform in your own, your own way. And I think that so much of life, we do have to agree about what the good is. You know, in many ways, liberalism is, is an enormous lie. You know, even if you live in a village, in fact, you're having to all the time take implicit choices about what the priorities are for that village, you know. All the villagers are agreeing, you know, implicitly, you know, they need some space to walk their dogs where their dogs aren't going to foul the place. You know, this this is a very simple example of the way in which life isn't just about private free choice. But the danger of imagining it is, is that you reduce those common spaces, you enclose them, and everything gets more and more privatized. And I think, for example, in the United States, I think you see that a landscape of extreme privatization and very little place for common assembly or places to walk freely, despite the fact that this is the most enormous country. You know, it's really, in a way, quite absurd. You walk somewhere without the danger of being shot. Exactly. You know, which often happens to British people or members of the Commonwealth. They imagine they can go for a walk in the woods and that a shot rings out, you know. <laughs> Shotgun pellets <laughs> yeah, yeah, on their right. backside. So yeah. we've seen populist movements in the US and the UK Brexit and the yeah. election of Donald Trump and so on. In what sense is that a movement, is that movement a backlash against the domination of liberalism, do you think? I think it very much is. I mean, it's been characterized by a British commentator, David Goodhart, as the battle between the nowheres and the somewheres. Yeah. And uh, I think that's right. It's as if increasingly we have a liberal elite that has waved goodbye to society, you know, prophesied by Mrs. Thatcher, that it's nowhere, it's everywhere, it's everywhere in the world. It, it doesn't need to have roots. It, it doesn't care. And it said goodbye to location and to tradition and to any sense of responsibility. This 
is this is uh, you know like Davos man. And increasingly, these people live in big cities. They're surrounded by people who are less wealthy, but nonetheless tied into the information or the finance economy. And essentially, there's a kind of servant class who are kind of new immigrants who are prepared to put up with much lower standards than the white working class that used to live there. And these people are essentially exploited. And a lot of the talk you get from white liberals and academics about diversity and so on is really self-serving because, you know, they like having these people to, you know, serve them in restaurants and clean their houses and so on. And uh, so we're increasingly seeing that there's a new line of division that doesn't correspond to the old line of division between, you know, the globalizers on the one hand and the populists on the other, who are not exactly the old left. It, it's a new combination of concerns which combines great economic anxiety, but also great cultural anxiety about identity. And it doesn't just include the old working class. Increasingly, it includes a huge proportion of middle class. And what we're seeing at the moment is a kind of dispossession of the majority. There's a kind of way these things creep up on us and there's an unthinking acceptance of these things, even by people yeah. of goodwill. And Absolutely. I wonder whether you'd comment on the, the demise of understanding of history as a contributor to this. I think that's a really important and uh, very, very significant and interesting question. I mean, I think increasingly the kind of new elite we have thinks history doesn't matter. It's what we need to escape from. And again, there are ways in which both the right and the left have said this. The left suggests that basically history is what you need to emancipate yourself from, as if something wonderful and natural will simply emerge if you do that, you know. And equivalently, the right is concerned about ripping up history. You know, you get rid of things, you turn things into commodities that can be bought and, and sold, you lay waste ancient space. I mean, it's happening a lot in China, for example. It seems to be what modernity does. It's very, very iconoclastic. It turns everything into abstraction, the abstraction of money or informational signs and numbers, but it also sort of lays waste the land. It makes it um, one kind of aggregate that you can sort of do what you like with, if you like. So the sacred, the symbolic is being you know, religion is absolutely at the heart of it. You know, history means a sacred past. And for most human societies, there's something sacred. There's a reflection of some kind of sacral cosmic order, whether we're talking about the indigenous peoples of, of this country or we're talking about, you know, later civilizations. It's all a variant of the same thing. So, yeah, sure, we hate the past, but then we don't know who we are. What might be a way forward in this post-liberal environment? I think you've talked about a post-liberal politics of yes. virtue. What could that involve? Well, I think it's important I'm saying post-liberal. You know, I'm not trying to trash the entire liberal legacy because there are ways in which, you know, we can't agree about everything. We go on debating about the good. And there are areas where we do have to be tolerant to accept that some people think radically different things from us and want to live different kind of lives. So I'm not saying there's no role for negative freedom. What I am saying is that if you try to solve everything through negative freedom, um, you get something horrific because basically 
nobody trusts anybody else. And therefore, you have to give more and more power both to the state and the market, because only money and law can then mediate between all these differences. And, and eventually it breaks down. And the people who still believe in some sense in society and rootedness start to rebel against that. So what do I mean by post-liberalism? I mean something a little bit paradoxical. I mean, in a kind of conservative sense, we have to sort of recover this sense that there is an objective good. There are traditions. People need to be educated into those traditions. Education needs to be much more about ethical formation. It needs to be much more education into wisdom, because the alternative is that the manipulators are in charge. You know, we've the reason democracy has started to collapse is that it's become all about politicians trying to manipulate you into various positions. So, to be a democracy, you need something else that's non-democratic. You need, in a really technical sense, something kind of aristocratic. You need to have sort of leaders and educators who uh, uh, eventually they're going to be, their pupils will take them over, but at every level of society. And the idea that we you don't have hierarchy is absurd. You know, you wouldn't have plumbers fixing your drains if there weren't plumbers who taught plumbers and trained plumbers and so on. But it's as if we pretend that that dimension of society doesn't actually exist. So I think we need far more sense of vocationalism, and we need to recover the sort of ancient and Greek and Republican sense that politics isn't just about increasing choice, or in Australia, increasing utilitarian efficiency. I gather you're, you're all kind of Benthamites, <laughs> but, 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 but it's not about that. It's about forming people in virtue. It's about shaping the good life in common. It's trying to produce real human flourishing. And of course, to reiterate, that doesn't mean we already know exactly what that is, but it means we're committed to a process of discovery of what that might be. Flourishing along with nature as well. Yeah, mm, yeah right. That's very important. Yeah, very important. How optimistic are you that we will be able to work towards some kind of common, a, a recapturing of the common good idea? I don't know whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic. I'm not sure that's the point. But I do think there's an opportunity because people are looking for something precisely because things are breaking down. I think that, you know, there's danger of populism and a desire for community to take an ugly, atavistic, nationalist, racist form. But I also think that liberals are far too quick to impose those judgments on ordinary people and that they can be persuaded towards a good version of what they're looking for. So in that sense, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and that was philosopher and theologian John Milbank. The poem Missing God, read by Kari Mallinson, of which we read a portion today, is by Dennis O'Driscoll and came from the book The Splash of Words, Believing in Poetry, by Mark Oakley. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do let your friends know about Life and Faith and get them in on the conversation. Subscribe to us on iTunes or on Spotify, we are there now, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally today, everything we do at CPX is funded by support from our donors. And we really need this to do the work that we do. If you're enjoying Life and Faith or anything else we do, then as we approach the end of the financial year, 
please consider supporting us with a one-off donation or, perhaps even better, regular monthly giving. Go to publicchristianity.org to donate. Every bid helps. We can't do it without you. We're going to be taking a break for a few weeks, but we'll be back soon with more Life and Faith. We'll see you then.